Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Claire Brown, who is a professor of economics at UC Berkeley. Claire has published research on many aspects of inequality and sustainability. Her book, Buddhist Economics, an enlightened approach to the dismal signs, provides an economic framework that integrates global sustainability, shared prosperity, and care for the human spirit. Her research team created the Sustainable Share Prosperity Index, SSPI, and Claire is a volunteer with 350 Bay Area Action, where she co-chairs a legislative committee to work on passing key climate justice bills in California. Welcome, Claire. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Uh, I, I want to start with um, the, the Sustainable Shared Prosperity um, index. I find that extremely interesting. So you have a paper on this. I know that I got the beta version you are working on, um, uh, improving it or changing some of the data, some of the uh, data that might have come through. Uh, But the paper creates a policy index um, that measures the, uh, the system of national policies, so regulations and programs and you look at 50 different countries, a uh, whole swath of um, different scales and, and different continents. And the Sustainable Shared Prosperity Policy Index, SSPI, integrates three pillars, sustainability, market structure, and governance that represent the government functions of protecting the environment, structuring markets, and delivering programs and services. And you say that these three pillars are further divided into 13 policy categories, which together contain 54 policy indicators. Uh, Before we start, Claire, I want to um, I want to uh, sort of reveal my bias toward metrics, you know, coming from uh, the corporate world where there are, you know, typically a very large number of metrics uh, that people track in different departments. And uh, when the senior decision maker says, I can deal with 100 metrics, they will combine all of them into one or two uh, so that you can make a decision. And uh, that tend to be uh, somewhat, uh, you know, uh, ad hoc uh, way, uh, way of combining them. Uh, but in this, in this uh, paper, you know, you're basically saying that you did some sensitivity analysis. There could be different ways of combining them. Uh, but the general message remains the same. You also say that, you know, this data is now publicly available. Anybody who wants to look at it and maybe come up with a different way of combining information, you're open to that. You would love to see that as well, right? So you want to talk a bit about how you went about the SSPI index? Terrific. I'm so glad that you found it interesting um, and that the aggregation didn't drive you over the cliff. (laughs) But the the reason that I ended up putting together a research team at Berkeley to study policies is that from my book, Buddhist Economics, which basically is based upon sustainability, 
but also the well-being of people, not just their consumption or their income. And then also looking at global suffering or, or sort of how countries work globally together. So I would give talks with, about my book and the audience would say, but just a second, this sounds like a uh, la la land. Is there really no <laughs> yeah. economies that actually do this? And I said, yes, actually, we do know the policies. Um, Joe Stiglitz, Nobel laureate, already taught us that countries choose their level of inequality. Hmm. And then the climate scientists gave us roadmaps for how to go from a fossil fuel energy economy to a clean energy economy. So we have their roadmaps on, on how to basically reach sustainability. And then the UN taught us with the Millennium Goals how the countries around the world could come together and work to reduce global poverty and global starvation and educate women and girls. And we once we had those goals, we showed how to do it. So it's like we know the policies to make this happen. And the U.S., by the way, is not the leader in this. We know those policies. And the reason Joe Stiglitz and I and other economists can work on how to get rid of inequality, where are the policies, is because of European countries. The European yep. countries are way ahead of us in sustainability and in reducing inequality. And um, they also do better at working together to relieve global suffering, although everybody's a bit weak on that. Um, so let me just say, so I brought a team together and I said, yeah. okay, let's do a policy index. And so we started and uh, the OECD really pushed to have something like this done, although they've never done it. Mm -hmm. we around And we couldn't find any policy ind indices that covered very many policies. We found some on, oh, how come sort of, what are the antitrust laws and are they enforced? Oh, okay. Um, a few were here and there, but nothing that covered all all the systems together. Because yeah. even though aggregation, I know, presents a lot of problems, and we did run a lot of sensitivity tests. Yeah. Um, what I what I realize as an economist is I take a systems approach, so that any one policy by itself. You can't just look at it, separate it out, and act like it's working by itself because it is integrated and is complemented by all the other policies in a country. Mm -hmm. And I think you saw that when we started comparing countries. Um, and so you need to really look at the policies as a system. But then I always want everybody to go down and be able to look at specific policies or specific areas because every single country can improve in some way yeah. in certain policies. And actually, unfortunately, the sustainability pillar is our weakest pillar. But you might know that with the problems with global warming and climate change. So just to, um, so, so the three pillars, you say market structure, which is regulation of employment, taxes, and property, governance, programs for healthcare and education, policies for infrastructure, rights, public safety, and global role, and sustainability regulation of impact on ecosystem, land, waste, and greenhouse gases. And so, so um, from a methodological perspective and the framework perspective, Claire, you have some sort of a target, uh, and then you're looking at where the country actually uh, comes in at? Yeah, what we do is we take the UN's approach with the Human Development Index, which is that if you want to look at a specific policy, then what you do, they look at outcomes, but set policies are the same way. You set goalposts. You sort of set, what's your goal? What's your best goal? And then you say, well, sort of what's the worst countries are doing? Mm -hmm. and that's your minimum and your maximum. And then you can normalize that policy, all the outcomes, not the, not the outcomes, but all the metrics in that policy, you can normalize them across countries to be between zero and one. And then you can compare the countries and also you can aggregate across policies. So that's a pretty standard approach, um, but you gotta get the data for policies. And let me tell you, that was a challenge. <laughs> right, right. It was a big challenge, yeah. And there's and, a lot of missing data, right? So you had to essentially come up with some proxies to, to fill, to backfill what's missing. 
that's right. But let me just let yeah. me just mention one thing that's really important because a lot of people don't understand that economies are not just capitalist or they're not just socialist, but almost all economies are a hybrid. And so there's even in political science it's called varieties of capitalism, but it could actually be called varieties of socialism. I mean, it's like the whole point is that every economy almost, there are a few exceptions, have markets. And the markets do a great job of equilibrating supply and demand, but every market's structured. And that means every market has rules. They have regulations and rules that sort of frame how the supply and demand come together and what they do. And so the whole point is you can either let big business markets, and we do that in the U.S., especially under the recent administration, in fossil mm -hmm. fuels, for example. Big oil yeah. is running the fossil fuel market, mm. um, which is unfortunate. But big pharma is actually running the pharmaceutical market. So, so we do have these markets that are run by big business. And so we see the, the markets becoming more and more concentrated. We see executive pay going up um, and profitability going up. So it presents a problem, whereas the European countries are much better at structuring markets that the government structures it in a way that gets the social outcomes that they want. And so that's yeah. really important. And then the other important role of government. So let me ask uh, let me ask a quick question on that, Carol. So, sure. um, you know, uh, free market capitalism, uh, and I, I know that you're going to get into this. Uh, for that to function properly, we need to we need to have uh, market failures identified and taken care of. For example, monopolies we have to consistently apply monopoly laws. And so if we had that free market capitalism in the US today, we won't have this, right? We won't have oil companies running the oil market, pharmaceutical companies running the life sciences market, nor do we have half a dozen companies, um, you know, basically uh, getting most of the gains in the economy. So we have half a dozen companies nearing 1 trillion, 2 trillion in market caps. Uh, and everybody else is sort of, sort of at the bottom of the barrel. Uh, that is not really free market capitalism, is it? Well, to be honest, there's no, just like there's no economy that doesn't have some markets, there's no such thing as free market capitalism. And that to do that, you absolutely have to have competitive markets, which means lots of companies competing. You have to have perfect information, people acting rationally, um, the, you know, the, the thing that economists love about free in the idealistic world, if they existed, hey, they would be terrific. Um, <laughs> we would create a lot of social welfare. We would internalize all our cost. We would not have everything that you just said. You gave a good description of what the free market um, is the opposite of what the free market would give us. And so we know that, in fact, we don't see free markets because all of the assumptions of a free market economy are missing. Yeah. Aren't there. So, and, and the other thing that we all know is that countries also have to provide basic goods and services and some, and, and so of course that's where we get into the fight in the U S over what's the role of government. How big do we want it to be? What should we do? And, so we end up with this crazy healthcare system, for example, that people end up having their employers pay for their health care. And so that means a lot of people end up without health care or inadequate health care. It, it's it's a somewhat very expensive system also. Mm. Um, and so we look at other countries and health care is provided basically as a public good or a social good. Um, it's not provided by employers, but it's provided through the government and much less expensive. So it's it's like you get these trade-offs, but you have to ask, oh, the other thing that, that we include in the SSPI, and this is really important, besides healthcare and education, and one of the things we brought into it with actual feedback from our experts from beta one that you mentioned, they yeah. said you need more human rights. You need more policies related to opportunity. So we've added some of those. 
yeah. which was a challenge. But you know, we got great input from experts on in different areas, and so I think beta two. I mean, a uh, version two. People are going to like it. It's almost ready to put up. And okay. Okay. Not quite. Uh, we'll, we'll get there in a month. Yeah. So again, uh, going back to the mechanics of this. So, so you have variety of um, categories or metrics, and you can uh, some some of the data is available, so you can observe the value. You have a goalpost, uh, which is the minimum and maximum expectations, uh, and so the observed value and the minimum and maximum expectations gives you sort of a normalization uh, of the observed value. Uh, and then you bring it all together. Um, is it uh, is just an arithmetic average that uh, ultimately gets into the SSPI score? Is what gets into it? I'm sorry, I didn't. Is it just an average of the various categories that uh, ultimately forms the SSPI total score? Right. Well, what we do is we take our each pillar has categories, yeah. and each category is a linear average weighted equally. Um, of its indicators. And then we actually, and we're very careful in how we set up the category so that we can do this. Um, again, with a lot of sensitivity testing. And then we take the average of the categories to get the pillar. But then the pillar is actually geometrically weighted, not, not a linear weight. Um, okay. Because uh, we, we could go into that, but probably most people are yawning when I mention that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, we have some students. We have some students on this podcast. So then we have, um, we end up, so we have the three pillars. I think actually the three pillars by themselves are really important. And you notice, you might say, well, you know, sustainability actually um, includes government rules and regulations. It, it has a lot to do with market structure, but it also includes government programs um, and services. Why do you put it separately? And we put it separately because, first of all, we think these policies are critical for right now. If, if we don't deal with sustainability, um, the planet won't exist for humans in the future. So that's number one. But number two, we also looked very carefully and said, which of these policies tend to go as a system. And so those, those policies or indicators tend to go as a system within the sustainability area. Yeah. Um, and so that was the reason that we, and we also wanted to keep everybody focused on sustainability in countries because we didn't know this would happen, but I wasn't surprised when the sustainability pillars weaker than the government goods and services. Because, you know, let's face it, countries are doing much, much better about healthcare and education and, um, the, you know, those kinds of programs than they right. are at cutting back carbon emissions. Yeah, so do, do, you, want to, uh, do you want to talk, uh, you know, maybe give an example of a category under sustainability and, you know, how you might have measured it? Oh, okay. Um, I wonder you know, something like waste or you know something like that, perhaps. Uh, let's see which one. Which one did would you think was interesting? Uh, uh, sustainability. So there are multiple categories underneath that. So um, now sustainability has five categories. We have okay. ecosystems, land, waste, energy, and greenhouse gases, hmm. and then. We um, have the policies, the indicators, the policy indicators that go into each of those. Yeah. And so, for example, in waste, we have like municipal waste, which basically is measuring landfill. Hmm. Um, and because those policies are really important and countries vary a lot. And then we have the Geneva toxic waste um, policies and which countries have signed on to which ones. Hmm. And because so we, we care a lot about landfill waste because actually that's a great measure for overconsumption or wasteful consumption. It's an outcome that you can see. Oh yeah, we uh, yeah. the UN had already taught us with the SDG outcomes that there was a lot of wasteful consumption. Hmm. Um, and then, so within each one of these, like an energy, 
we we look at what percent of the energy is renewable yep. what what percent of the electrical energy or energy is from coal and yep. then and then we also the third the third policy within that is efficiency of the energy use um, so let me ask you a, a quick question on that Carol. so the you are very focused on uh, fossil fuel and and greenhouse gases. Um, you know, France, for example, I think seventy percent of its energy is coming from nuclear fuel, and you know there is obviously uh, differing opinions on it. Um, nuclear fuel doesn't create um, greenhouse gases, but it does create um, a waste. Uh, that needs to be stored <laughs> in many cases fifty thousand years somewhere because it's radioactive uh, spent fuel. That's right. So that actually goes under toxic waste. Under but, toxic waste, okay. Yeah, okay. But, and, but under energy, when we said present a percent renewable or clean energy, we spent a long time thinking about this. I know it's highly controversial, but I finally decided that I would adopt the approach that. Um, the UN adopted and, and the EU adopts and the OECD adopts. They put nuclear under clean or renewable, but then we have the toxic waste problem. Right. So, okay. okay. So they get hit. So France may be coming up uh, pretty well under waste, but they will get hit elsewhere in that metric, in another category. That's right. And that's okay. sort of the reason I'm big on systems approach. But you're right, France stayed nuclear and Germany didn't. And so Germany's definitely suffering more from carbon emissions from energy. Right, right. Now, uh, similarly, what are, the, uh, what are the categories under market structure? Okay, let me... Um, so, so it's um, property rights and things like that, right? Uh, That's right. So we have... Four so some of the government rules and regulations that are critical are in the employment market, which is, I'm a, I studied labor economics and taught labor economics, um, and I'm still sort of a labor economist, although <laughs> it's spread out quite a bit. But, um, you know, the government rules and regulations actually set up uh, health and safety work. It, they set up hours, they set up overtime hours, they set up minimum wages. The countries even set up um, rules for CEO pay to worker pay. They, they set up rules for unionization and how you do it or uh, board representation. So the government plays a really big role in setting up the labor market. And that's what we call the employment policies. Okay. Okay. And then we have tax policies, which are basically... Um, how do you tax individuals' income? How do you tax wealth? How do you tax business income? Right. And then we have property, which really is relates to enforcement of antitrust laws, mostly. Okay. Okay. Uh, and so... And, as well as some yeah. protection of private property. And then, well, we have a new, a new one that we put in version two, which was critical. I just needed to work with the people at the Federal Reserve to do it. Uh, do it well, and we put in the financial system and how well it how how well it's set up to function. Okay, so um, the the presence and enforcement uh, of you know market failures uh, or laws that would prevent market failures, like monopoly laws, that that doesn't get into market structure. That gets in. That's under property. Under property. Okay. Yeah, property might be a weird name for it, but. Um, that seems to be how the, the legal people talk about it. <laughs> right, right. Okay, okay. And that the third pillar is governance. And yeah. Right. Although we, we changed that name to just, we now call that government um, goods and services because people didn't understand what governance was. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> so government goods and services. Okay, so this is... Um, so entitlements and things like that will fall in there? Well, now we add, okay, so we had the education, healthcare, and then we have infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and public safety and the global role. And we expanded on all of those, but we added a whole new category called rights. Hmm. And so that we thought was really important. And it's actually not just 
like we have a gender equity, but we also have access to capital, for example. Um, and so that you can, and we have the, we have um, actually democra a democracy variable. Yeah. And we even have adoption of key UN conventions, which relates to human rights. Mm. So we have an array of uh, indicators or policies that are then aggregated into what we call now rights. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's a, that's a big category. Um, and so, so the idea here is uh, you have a series of measurements. Some of them are outcomes based. Some of them are not, uh, there may not be data available in certain countries that you could proxy uh, somehow using other types of data. And then ultimately, uh, using a geometric mean, you uh, you bring it down to a singular number called the Sustainable Shared Prosperity Index (SSPI). And there there aren't really any surprises in this list, right? It, uh, it's close to intuition. Uh, Sweden, Finland, and Denmark on top of the list. Um, and this is 50 countries that you looked at, and uh, some of the Middle Eastern countries and India and China bringing up the rear. So it's, um, it, it, uh, it is very much to our intuition, I think, right? What we find. Right, which actually, I to me, was reassuring the European countries lead the list, but um, they aren't all Northern European. They're, they're not all we think about as social democracies, like France and Germany are right up there. Um, and But Japan does well, and... The UK doesn't do badly, although most of us would expect them to do worse than they do. And Australia, like UK and Australia are now 12 and 13 in our in our new version. But Canada, which um, most of us sort of think is a lot like the US, actually, when we added some variables, some indicators, Canada fell a bit. So, hmm. but the US didn't. The US across all of our versions has stayed around in the low 30s which is not surprising, but disappointing. It's like we have a long way to go. And this data is mostly for 2018. Hmm. And it might have gotten worse in, uh, in the next two years. Oh, yeah. No, that's right. I think when one goes into the policies don't change actually that fast. We did also look in 2010 and we realized, you know what, the policy data doesn't change very much um, very quickly. So we decided to just look at one year and not try to look at it over time. Mm -hmm. But um, in the U.S., policies did change really quickly. So it's not that they can't. It's that usually they don't. Yeah, yeah. And I find this uh, country by country comparisons that you did um... Um, player very interesting uh, and I know that some of these numbers might have changed so the first one is France and Sweden and you have um, a chart you know that sort of compares the different axes the spider chart and the axes are ecosystem land waste greenhouse gases employment tax property uh, that includes many things there as we discussed education healthcare, infrastructure a big category called rights and public safety uh, and global role. Um, so those are the axes. And France and Sweden seem roughly the same, uh, except uh, Sweden is uh, has a significantly higher role, higher uh, higher number for global role. What does it, what does that imply? Yes, yeah, so I found that really interesting. That Sweden has. And they pride themselves on this, which I didn't realize um, until I did this. They actually pride themselves on the amount of money that the country gives to the UN and to um, UN programs. Mm. And they're they're way ahead of the other countries. And they're good at giving to the new, you know, the UN set up a green fund. And Obama was very good at giving to it. We had, uh, we gave quite a bit. But the minute... Trump came in, not another penny went to it. And in fact, the U.S., the amount that we give to the U.S. has really dropped. But Sweden has has hung in there. And to be honest, the rest of the EU countries should follow Sweden. Sweden's role 
about supporting and helping um, developing world countries is really, I think, admirable. That's that's so interesting. Uh, and I would imagine, is this? do you look at this from a per capita perspective? From a world uh, capital, no, uh, you know Sweden's contribution and France's contribution on a per capita basis, or, or more aggregate. What we do is we always um, across countries we either compare it uh, by population or by GDP, depending upon what we're looking at. Okay, okay, so it's sort of normalized for the size of the country, and so so the other dimensions though they're roughly the same, France and Sweden. Uh, except for that one. Uh, and then you have another comparison here between the U.S. and Russia, which I find uh, really interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the dimensions that uh, that stick out is waste that uh, Russia appears to do a lot better compared to the U.S., which I find uh, sort of surprising. Yeah, I found that really surprising, too. And that actually made us go back and look at one of the reasons we also did um, did this study was to be able to look and see, does this really still make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we it even made us think, oh, by, are, is there anything, um, if something didn't seem right, then we'd actually go back, look at the indicator, look at the policy, and decide if we were using the best data available. Yeah. And, and so um, I'm gonna, I, I can't wait to compare US and Russia again. But by the way, US in the latest version is number 32. Russia fell to 41. Yeah, uh, that's 2018 though, uh, Claire. I think uh, I fret to see what 2020 looks like for us. Oh, um, man. And because, you know, uh, U.S. appears to be dominating Russia on public safety <laughs> in, the, in this chart, uh, it will be quite interesting to see where we land up in uh, 2020. Uh, well, I don't know that when we'll have 2020, but it's a good point. The other thing that one can do, though, oh, I'm really glad you pointed that out, Bill. It's a great point that what we can do when we think something's changed a lot is to go look at that particular policy indicator and outcome and see what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, more philosophically, Claire, you know, um, U.S., a champion of democracy uh, all around the world and, and Russia and autocracy, um, there isn't, you know, a lot of difference in many of these dimensions between these two countries, um, which is quite interesting. Right. Yeah. No, but also um, when the U.S. is not doing very well, you would expect it to look a little bit more like Russia, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and maybe that, it looks more like Russia now because our president is totally in love with Russia. <laughs> uh, so so we'll wait to see what, <laughs> what it looks like. Uh, and then another comparison I found quite interesting uh, is between China and India. Just to just to let you know, Carol, you know, I, I grew up in, in South India. I spent almost half my life in India and the other half here uh, in the U.S. And the place I grew up actually um, is uh, is one of the not one of the, the first democratically elected Marxist government in the world in the in the 50s. Uh, and it, you know, it's very, very left leaning uh, all the way to the Marxist <laughs> type uh, type system. And so I have been able to see both sides of this coin. And I can see, you know, the, the issues between the two, and we'll get into it in, in the in the Buddhist economics uh, about your book. Uh, but just looking at China and India, again, um, the differences are not, not significant, at least, you know, so India appears to do better again in in waste handling, which again, I would have, I would have um, I'm surprised by that as well. Well, the India, like any country that is still dealing with a lot of poverty, yeah, has a hard time, um, especially in the government goods and services 
uh, pillar. Hmm. Because as much as it would like to provide good medical care to everyone, it doesn't really have the resources. And, and we've seen that recently, especially. Right. Um, and, it's, and then also, even though they'd like to have good education for everyone, we know that that's not possible in large parts of India, especially like in, say, the um, Mumbai slums and so forth, where education is really not what they want it to be. It doesn't, it's not that they don't want it. It's that, you know, they need to be able to have the resources. And, and I think as India develops, unfortunately, they've been really set back this most recent yeah. recession. Um, but India has good motivation. Um, Modi's done some weird things that have really <laughs> been difficult like is when he, when he tried to get rid of currency and so forth. So to an economist, say, oh my gosh, no. <laughs> but, um, and they're really suffering right now. But I have high hopes for India. I, I, I visited India a couple of times and I really respect the people and what they're able to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, the other surprising thing here is, you know, on the rights dimension, it's just marginally better uh, than China. And so, you know, again, philosophically, you know, we would think of India as a democracy. Um, you know, there are some indications, you know, it's almost like a one party democracy now. So <laughs> that's probably not going to work. Um, but I find that, you know, that the fact that India is just marginally better than China on the rights dimension is also quite interesting. Yeah, uh, but I'm not surprised given that they've come out, they have a history of the caste system. And, um, um, you know, and they also have lagged a bit in rights for women. Hmm. So if you just think about it from that viewpoint, you can see that um, why they might not be a whole lot better than China on rights. Yeah, yeah. And as expected on infrastructure, healthcare, and education, China appears to do a lot better. And you already mentioned this is a resourcing problem, not an not a not an intention uh, problem. Um, the the per capita GDP of India is only two thousand dollars. China is ten thousand dollars. It's about five x uh, compared to India. So these are not uh, you know in some sense today comparable economies, right? That's right. You know, every economist like to compare India and China just because economists used to say, oh, to develop well and to develop quickly, you need to have a democracy. Um, and China showed us actually to develop well and develop quickly, you really ought to have this totally top down government. <laughs> and the government owns a lot of state owned enterprises, and you make sure that they're. They get to monopolize markets and you keep out foreign competitors, but you make sure you get their technology. I mean, China's been really good at figuring out how to grow quickly, mm -hmm. um, how to really keep out global competition and find a niche, especially when they, when they became the manufacturing center of the world. And um, they, and, and they really do totally control. They have so-called markets, but they're totally controlled in a way far beyond any social democracy. Yeah, this is where our administration got a lot of, uh, lot of their current ideas, Claire. Do you think that's a good thing? Well, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if you compare India to China, as you say, they, they seem to have done exceptionally well. Uh, and so, you know, there was there was some analysis I saw 10 years ago, 15 years ago that said democracy is costing India about two percentage points in its GDP. And if that's in fact true, then you have to ask if if uh, democracy is a good system for a developing country. Right. I think in, in India, um, I was I spent some time in Bangalore because I did a book on semiconductors and studied semiconductors with our engineering school. And um, like one of the things that I realized in India is there they did need more. They did need some more local government power. Hmm. Um, so, for example, in Bangalore, they built some great uh, highways that circled the city to try and help people get around and companies to get around. They tried to make sure they had good electrical systems because 
you can't have any uh, beeps in electricity when you have semiconductors in design. <laughs> right. Um, and so they were really trying to get an infrastructure there that would work for foreign companies to come in. And every major semiconductor company had had design centers there. We interviewed 16 design centers in Bangalore. But the problem was um, the government didn't have the enforcement powers to actually enforce the rules and the laws they did have. And so, for example, people just started building uh, their little shops or their little food stands right on top of the highway. And so you try and drive on the highway and it wasn't a highway. Mm. It actually became like, you know, a little village road. Um, and so I said, well, I wonder why they can't keep it a highway. And they said, you know, the people won't let them. They, they, they will just protest and mm. continue to have problems. But also then, like electricity, I said, well, why can't we have more constant electricity? The government's put a lot of money into it in Bangalore. They said, well, that's because people cut the lines and, you know, to feed into them and so forth. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, um, you know, I'm not sure I call that democracy. I yeah. think I think you have to rethink what is democracy. Hmm. And, because it was hard for the design companies to function in Bangalore. Right, right. Yeah, so, you know, it, there are structural issues that needs to be thought through. And, you know, from my perspective, India is slipping down a path uh, that could threaten, um, you know, it's sort of a democratic uh, stance, right? I mean, you cannot have a democracy with just one party. Um, and so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next uh, few years. I want to uh, go into your book, uh, Claire. So Buddhist economics, what, what exactly is that? Okay, I'm glad you asked. It's actually <laughs> probably a terrible name. Um, my publisher decided to call it that because it grew out of a course that I teach at UC Berkeley called Buddhist Economics. It's a seminar, but it's, it's an undergraduate course. Yeah. Um, but it grew out of teaching Econ 1. And to be honest, economists, we all know this, we don't do a good job teaching Econ 1. We don't, we really sort of don't bother to explain how we end up with so much inequality. We don't bother to explain how we end up with so much pollution, which is an external cost to society. We don't, we don't do a good job in explaining sort of the, the two biggest problems we have, which are inequality mm -hmm. and climate change. Yep. And those are ongoing long-term problems and they're interrelated, but we don't explain that well when we teach Econ 1. And so, the problem is, in fact, that we do teach free market economics in Econ 1. And it's like this, none of the assumptions are held. It's an idealized system that is, mm. not, is not what goes on in the world. So I was walking along with my dog um, in the park by my house. And I finally said, oh, I'm a practicing Buddhist. So you uh -huh. have to take that too. Okay, a Tibetan Buddhist. And I said to my dog, how would Buddha teach Econ 1? <laughs> so I set up a, a seminar to teach it at Berkeley. And the yeah. department thought it was a great idea. They said, how interesting. But it, it too is just based upon economics that's already out there and is really important. We just sort of ignore it in, in undergraduate work. Hmm. So it's based upon basically Amartya Sen's capabilities approach hmm. and for which he got a Nobel Prize which basically says how good your life is isn't determined by your income or consumption. It's determined by what can you do with your life. Right. And so how capable are you in your life? And so a lot of people think of that, oh, what's a full opportunity life? Um, and then it's also, known, uh, it's also based upon Joe Stiglitz and Anthony Atkinson's work on inequality and how do we create an equitable economy so we, we know the answers to that and then it's also based upon creating a sustainable economy and i'm saying okay what if i bring all of this together what are really the main underlying assumptions because as an economist i always say to my students start with your assumptions what are your assumptions yeah and so we end up in a buddhist economy just assuming interdependence 
which is a law of ecology, but it was also a really important Buddhist concept that everyone's connected with each other and with the planet. And then we go to human nature. And <laughs> so, you know, that um, all the psychologists and, and now the neuroscientists say, humans are not just self-centered and only self-regarding, don't only care about themselves. Although that's a really important assumption in free market economics. Um, oh, and by the way, there's no interdependence in free market economics either. All systems are separate. Um, people are not related or inter interdependent with each other. Each, each person is an idiosyncratic person. Hmm. And, uh, this, and human activity and the ecology systems are not interdependent. They're right. all separate. Okay, and then the so the quest so the point is in in Buddhist economics, people are recognized to be altruistic as well as self caring. You don't you aren't one or the other. You of course are going to take care of yourself and your family, but you also care about other people. Okay, and that, that's so, really important. In the minute, and of course, every field thinks that except economists. Right. Yeah. So let me uh, perhaps just very quickly debate you. Uh, so. So this assumption is very critical, right? Um, you know, people are egocentric and essentially trying to maximize their own self-importance and self-worth. And even if we extend that to, uh, you know, uh, family, community. Um, it, so there is evidence, uh, Claire, that, um, you know, at the most a human can uh, nourish 150 uh, relationships, whether it's social media or, or actual physical uh, contact. And evolutionarily, you know, this has, um, this has basis because we're coming from a clan type, um, you know, homo sapien clans 50,000 years ago. So, so even, even if you go to the next level, an individual is not necessarily egocentric about herself, she is still sort of egocentric about her close circle, isn't she? Um, I think that's still a part of the self-caring versus caring about others. So, yes, yeah, so you can, of course, and you really should. I mean, it's really important to help take care of your close circle. Um, but it's also really important when somebody comes to you and says, you know what, it's we're and almost everybody will agree with it. We have a problem with, and let's just take police brutality. Yeah. We have a serious problem with police brutality. Let me show you some black men and black women who've been killed by police for no reason. Um, they're in that they, they shouldn't have been killed. And the people say, Oh my gosh, that's terrible. Of course I care about that. Hmm. Um, and you, and you even in this, I think COVID's really shown how the majority, the great majority of people care enormously about helping other people. I've been so impressed with that, how yeah. they've been helping strangers, how they've stood up against police brutality, how they are really wanting, they're willing to have a worse economy if it will help save lives um, in our country, that they realize, my gosh, 180,000 people had died. We, we have to do something better. And so that's all that's, that's really related here. And I also think people are now really aware of their, their interdependence, human actions, and how it affects the planet, the ecosystems, hmm. and how the health of the ecosystems affects us. As yes. I mentioned, I'm out in California with wildfires, and my air is so smoky today that no one's supposed to go outside. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and, and so I think that people realize that, but the minute you have any other regarding, as we call it in economics, caring about other people, in the minute you realize the impact of humans on the environment, then you've totally changed the economic system. Hmm. And let me just add one more thing that I think this is pretty important. Yeah. In a rich country, we have a rich country. And and of course, the problem is inequality, so we need to do a better job of distributing our richness. But, but what's really important is 
that no longer is efficiency our number one criteria for judging policies or performance. Hmm. So in economics, that's actually the number one criteria is efficiency. Right. Oh, how efficient is it? Is there any way to do it at a lower cost? And that's not the right way to ask. I think we have to care, and we do care enormously about quality, that we care about what's the quality of the outcome? Hmm. How, and, and then, in saying sustainability, a lot of the quality has to do with how quickly can we do it? Mm -hmm. Oh, we need to stop carbon emissions and we need to bend it down quickly. And we aren't talking about 2050. We're talking about 2030. Yep. And you're like, oh, that costs too much. Let's just, 2050 is much more efficient. <laughs> right. And you'll say, no, 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 that's not the right criteria. Mm. So... Um, so there are two things here, right? One is, so if you relax this assumption that people are just egocentric and just maximizing self-worth, then you have a different system. So from a, from a framework perspective, how, so where does Buddhist economics sit between free market capitalism and socialism? Well, I think of it as actually more like a social democracy and it's a form of capitalism and it's a form of socialism. So I think of it actually as a hybrid system. Yeah. I think the social democracies have done a, a very good job. We can always do better in any government, um, but they've done a good job of using markets and structuring them for distribution of goods and of things that people buy and want to buy and produce. But they've also done a great job of bringing in childcare and um, making sure that people get health care and education. And so they have a really strong social safety net. They yeah. have good family paid leave and good vacation leave. And, and they sort of have all the things that I think we need to be able to live a meaningful life. We want to get well-educated and we want to have a job where we can really use our skills and talents. We also want time for life in our family and our community and we all want to feel good, I think, about our contribution to the world, at, either at work or in the community or our volunteer work. We all want to find a way, I think, to make a contribution, um, hmm. to make the world a better place, even if it's just in our neighborhood. Right. And so mechanistically, uh, Claire, so how will it feel? So if we have a Buddhist economy today, uh, I would imagine, you know, anything that has some sort of a market failure like healthcare, education, all of those would be sort of in the safety net, right, from a policy perspective. Uh, but you are still envisioning markets uh, for anything that does not really have any sort of market failure, right? Well, no, I think of basically you, you have markets to distribute market, things that are produced in the marketplace, um, but that you make sure with government programs and services that everyone has basic goods and needs, which as you mentioned, includes healthcare and education, food stamps, uh, um, and human rights and opportunity that people need, and, and also unemployment insurance or the that when something goes wrong in your life, you know you can still continue to take care of yourself and your family. Hmm. And that that's the, that's the safety net part. So people, and once people feel financially secure that way, it's amazing. They actually can work better and more. They There have been studies that show that financial anxiety really reduces people's health, but also their capabilities to make good decisions and to get work done. Right. And and so these these hybrid economies, let's just call them hybrid because I hate this idea. It's, so <laughs> yeah. you know, it's actually a, it's both um, that these hybrid economies, once people feel financially secure and they get access to education and they're healthy, they can they can then make decisions that are good for them, good for their family, good for the community. They can really feel good about who they are and what they're giving and the life they're living. And that's really what our goal is. Let's, let's support the way that people can live the lives and do their full development of themselves and, 
ensure that they're also helping their neighbors or family, their community. So, so are you a proponent of, let's say, minimum basic income? Um, you know, I, I, I believe in a lot of tools, and that's one approach. It's not my favorite approach, by the way. I'd much rather offer real, a really good job for someone given their skills and talents. Um, but I'm not against a minimum basic income. It's just that when I've seen it up close, uh, what I've seen happen is that often once, first of all, the minimum is often really low because otherwise it costs too much. And then once people are have that in place, often everybody else says, oh, good, we don't have to worry about anybody anymore. Hmm. They just have their income. But they, they may not have a very good life. They might be much better off if they had a job or could develop job skills or they, they may this idea that all we need is a minimum amount of income to have a fulfilling life um, is really not true for most people. And if you talk to people, oh, they'll quickly tell you that. But also, I don't want people once we have a minimum, oh, good, we don't have to worry about anybody anymore. <laughs> they all have enough income. Um, I don't want anybody to be kicked to the curb. Yeah, so you know, the if we were to be um, if we were to implement something like this, you know, we we are going to have a transition, right? So a lot of the human, uh, repetitive human jobs, are going to be taken up by artificial intelligence, robotics, and so you know the way that we structured society in the past is not really feasible uh, in the future, right? So, so you know, system like this, then need to take into account sort of the initial conditions we would encounter uh, because of technology. Yeah, and I love the work you do on AI. You know, I am so excited by AI and um, automating a lot of tasks that no one really likes doing. But we, this is where the employment laws come into play. We really do need to include workers, in making this decision of how do you bring in new technology? How do you redesign jobs? How do you restructure them? You know, in my dream world, and Socrates also thought this, although it didn't happen, <laughs> that people can work a lot less. So when we use AI and, and technology intelligently, we can reduce the work week um, and everybody, with, and that's without people's standard of living plummeting. We can reduce the work week. People have more time to do the things that they really enjoy doing and caring for other people. Yeah. And that would be a, I think we overwork. I know we overwork. Um, I think we need to think about how would, would I really want to spend my time if I were, if I could reduce my work week and still have a similar standard of living, but not be quite so wasteful, by the way. <laughs> right. And also moving to clean energy, living in a modern economy with clean energy and regenerative agriculture. You know, how would I really like to spend my time? And mm. that's a great question for people to ask. What could I be doing that would truly make my life more meaningful? Mm. Yeah, that is, you know, um, we have we all have a very harsh constraint and that is time. Right. Uh, we haven't been able to increase quality of life spans much, even though people believe all the pharmaceuticals, everything has, uh, has done that, but we haven't really, you know. So the, the, the time allotment is sort of fixed for everybody. And, and so, you know, that question in that context becomes extremely important, right? You might be running for something, you never get there. And, then, you know, one day you just, you just go away. That's right. And actually, when you talk to people as they age, they'll say, actually, I wish I had more time to balance my work life and my family and community life. And we, you know, technology and AI are, can give us that tool, but we have to find out how to do it in a systematic way so that it actually does work out so that it's not just a way of paying people less and increasing inequality more. Right, right. Uh, so in conclusion, Claire, um, you know, from your research, is there a country out there that is sort of heading in this direction and has a, a likelihood of reaching it? Oh, I think the social democracies will continue to be our leaders. 
Yeah. Um, I think in this, let me just say, I think this next election is critically important for the U.S. to head in the right direction. Um, we can, we're a rich country, we have resources, we have motivated, talented people. America could do anything it wanted to. Um, but the thing is, is that at the individual level, let me just say that it's really important that we all think about how to make our lives more meaningful, but also how to, to help make the transition to a sustainable world. We, we really do need to all reduce our carbon footprints and we can, you know, use the carbon footprint tools online to find out what we could do to be better in that. But we also, I think, need to, every single person, if we would just get up and get out, not with the COVID right now, um, but you can do it remotely and work on something in a group to help improve the world. Like my work with 350 Bay Area on sustainability policies in California really means a lot to me, but it also makes an impact because I'm working with a bunch of other people who are, you know, they're smart, motivated in the synergy we have and the, and the impact we have is actually quite large. So I'm really hoping that everybody will help come together Create, first of all, work on the elections and then <laughs> work to create the green economy um, and a meaningful life for everybody. Right, right. Yeah, excellent. This has been great, uh, Claire. Thanks so much for spending time with me. And, it was uh, a pleasure. Thanks, Gil, for all you're doing. Yeah, and would love to, uh, love to see the, the updated version of the paper too when you're, when you're done with it. Terrific. I'll share it and it'll be online. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye-bye.